Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello once again and welcome everyone to Earth Destruction Directive. As usual, I am your host, Luke Giaconetti, and I'd like to take this opportunity to welcome everyone to my little giant monster podcast. Yes, I realize that a little giant monster podcast is kind of a negation in terms, but that's alright. Hope everyone enjoyed last month's episode, that was uh, King Kong Escapes, uh, where... Uh, we took a look at the 67 Toho solo feature for the 8th Wonder of the World as part of the Two True Freaks epic King Kong Month, and I hope you checked out the other episodes of King Kong Month, and not just the one that I was on, which was the 1933 Kong, but uh, I thought the whole series was very good. Um, Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell did a very uh, informative and entertaining commentary on the uh, 1976 version of King Kong, and then um, I think them, and along with the, the Hair Metal Hero, I think, um, did a very nice episode on Peter Jackson's version of King Kong, and Scott and Chris also did an episode on the Whitman uh, prestige format comic book adaption of King Kong. So, if you want King Kong, go check out the King Kong Month episodes at twotruefreaks.lobson.com. But today, we are getting back to the king of the monsters, and that is Godzilla. We are going all the way back, almost to the beginning. We're going to be looking at the second starring role for Godzilla, which is Godzilla Raids Again. And uh, we're going to be taking a look at that right after we take a quick break. tons of hell and fire, the fantastic war of giant fire monsters from the bowels of the earth, creatures born in hell to destroy each other. But first, they'll destroy the world as their struggle crushes mountains and smashes whole cities, as they scream their challenge of mortal combat and scorch the earth with 10,000 degree jets of flaming devastation. Alright, our movie this time out is Godzilla Raids Again, known in uh, Japan as Godzilla's Counterattack. Now, Godzilla Raids Again was released in Japan in 1955, a scant six months, actually, after the original uh, Gojira was released over there. It didn't get released over here in the States until 1959. The director is Motoyoshi Oda, and the special effects are by Eji Tsuburaya. Our story opens with pilot Sukioka and Kobayashi, and they are hunting for schools of fish for a fishering company in Osaka that they work for. Now at this point I should also mention that Sukioka is very friendly with Hademi, who is the boss's daughter. And um, they're just, say, just very chummy, let's leave it at that. Uh, Kobayashi's plane malfunctions while looking for fish, and he's forced to land near Iwato Island, an uninhabited strip of rocks formed by volcanic eruption. Sukioka tracks him down and finds him safe, but the two men hear strange sounds and suddenly find two giant monsters fighting. 
Sukioka immediately recognizes one of the monsters to be Godzilla. No sooner do they make this revelation than the two monsters battle off a cliff into the ocean. Sukioka and Kobayashi report to the authorities in Osaka and find out that the other monster Godzilla was fighting is an Angurus, a, pre a prehistoric beast that scientists say Godzilla lived around the same time as Godzilla and that there was an intense rivalry between the two monsters. Dr. Yamane, from the original Godzilla, says that there is no way to kill this Godzilla, as they cannot create another oxygen destroyer, but suggests using flares to lure Godzilla from inhabited parts of the country, as the original Godzilla was attracted to bright lights. Yamane admits that this is not exactly a great idea, but it's the only one he has at the time. Sure enough, Godzilla soon appears in Osaka Harbor. Jets are launched to shoot flares, which Godzilla sees and follows out of the harbor. The self-defense force congratulates themselves on a job well done of clearly getting rid of this problem forever. Meanwhile, a prison truck is transporting criminals as part of the evacuation of Osaka. The criminals decide that this is the perfect time to make a break for it, and they escape the truck. A few of them commandeer a delivery van and are pursued by the police. Amazingly, they manage to crash the delivery van into a fuel refinery, causing a huge explosion which lures Godzilla back along with Angurus. The two monsters fight an intense battle, during which they destroy much of Osaka, including the fishery, where Tsukioka and Kobayashi work. Godzilla finally gets the upper hand, biting Angurus's neck and shaking him around, then throwing him into a moat near Osaka Castle. Godzilla then fires his atomic beam and burns Angurus to death. Actually, sets him on fire. Tsukioka and Kobayashi are transferred to the Hokkaido office for the fishery, as they are the rest of the company is rebuilding the facility in Osaka. Life goes on. Godzilla soon reappears out at sea, and Tsukioka tracks him to a small icy island. Running low on fuel, he radios in and trades off with Kobayashi, and Kobayashi, while keeping an eye on him, repeatedly dives his small plane at the monster to keep him from escaping the island. But Kobayashi tempts fate once too often, and is struck by Godzilla's atomic beam, and crashes into a snowy wall of the island starting an avalanche. This inspires Sukioka, who informs the military to not fire on Godzilla directly, but instead at the ice and snow to bury him. The defense force does just that, burying Godzilla up to his shoulders in ice and snow, with Sukioka firing the last shot to bury the giant monster for good. Well, we know better than that. Um, this is, uh, this is... Godzilla Raids Again is kind of an interesting film because for a long time it was unavailable. Uh, I had this film on a Video Treasures VHS, actually was in fact titled Godzilla Raids Again uh, on, on the VHS. And I got that, but that was not an easy to find VHS. I, I don't know anyone else who had that growing up, even people that were Godzilla fans like my cousin and things of that nature. So, um, and it introduces Angurus, and as we've talked about before on this show, everybody loves Angurus, you know. He's a, he's a, he's a cool monster, and he's, you know, the underdog that everybody loves. So, a lot of people, I think, assume that this movie is probably better than it is. Now, the truth about Godzilla Raids, again, is that it was, in a lot of ways, the son of Kong to Godzilla. And by that, I mean, it was kind of the quickie let's make another one real fast because we got a big hit on our hands movie, much like Son of Kong was to the original King Kong. As I said earlier, Godzilla Raids Again was in theaters just about six months after uh, the original Godzilla was in Japan. This was made very quickly. That's one of the reasons why Inoshiro Honda doesn't direct. He was on another project, so Oda fills in for him. 
and um, furthermore, uh, Akira Ifukube doesn't do the music. Uh, Masaru Sato, who had, was another one of the in-house guys at Toho, does the music. So the whole thing kind of feels a little rushed and you know a little uneven it's a certainly a very big drop-off from the quality of the film preceding it or you know the previous year um but let's you know let's take the movie on its own merits here first off i just need to mention this i have this on the toho master collections from classic media and um uh, I was really not that impressed with the picture quality, to be completely honest. Now, one of the problems with the old VHS copy of Godzilla Raids Again was it was in much too dark, much, much too dark, especially uh, there's a number of scenes that are shot day for night, and they're just so dark that you can't see what's going on in them. And unfortunately, the fight between Godzilla and Anguirus was always like this. It was very difficult to see what was going on in the old VHS. They've lightened it up quite a bit, and and it's much easier to see what's going on now. I can finally see this fight in all its glory. So that I was very happy with. But you might remember that last episode I talked about how a lot of times when these black and white films are transferred to DVD, the contrast is so sharp that they just look fantastic. Well, unfortunately, whatever print Classic Media was using is a little soft. Uh, so there's a lot of damage on the print. It's, it's grainy in spots, especially obvious uh, second unit shots. Um, and the day for night shots, a lot of them, a lot of the ones that are not the special effect shots, like of the people evacuating and things of that, uh, that, things like that, they're kind of muddy. Um, I don't know what it is. It's just, uh, uh, it's it looks just gray. It's very plainly shot day for night. It looks as if the effect didn't work all that good. So. It's kind of a mixed bag video-wise. I'm happy to finally get it in a way that I can see it better than in the VHS, but, you know, it's not not one of their better releases. I'd also like to comment real quick on the DVD packaging. It's not a jewel case in the traditional sense. It looks kind of like a very thin book. I've seen some anime series have this kind of uh, uh, case where it just opens up like a book and then there's a case inside. Now the problem with it is the spine of this is not very flexible because it, it's uh, this shiny uh, printed paper on the cardboard. It sounds like this when you open it. Okay, and uh, the problem is, is the spine just creaks every time and so now that I just opened it, I'm putting it down on the desk and it doesn't close all the way it's pointing up at maybe like a 15 20 degree angle and eventually if you put something on top of it like I'll, I'll put my notepad on top of it now and by the time we're done with the podcast it'll lay flat again that's just a general criticism of the uh, toho master collection cases i mean they, they look nice but i would have preferred just regular clamshells with the silver anyway um let's talk about the movie here now uh something that's uh this movie is very well known for is a slight mistake that was made during the special effects makes this movie very unique. Now normally when you're shooting um, large special effects uh, like a Daikaiju, you over crank the camera. That is, you shoot in high speed so that when you play back at normal speed it gives them the illusion of mass. Well, in this case, one of Tsuburaya's assistants under cranked the film. So he shot it in low speed. So when brought back up to high speed, the monsters move really, really quick. Now, in a couple of instances, this actually looks pretty cool because it gives them a certain ferocity. Um, there's a couple of uh, moments where 
uh, Godzilla and Anguirus are kind of grappling with each other, or Angie's standing on his hind legs, and, and Godzilla and him are grappling almost like uh, Greco-Roman wrestlers. And, you know, Anguirus will keep swiping over and over, trying to... Uh, to, to scratch at uh, Godzilla's underside. And that looks really neat because they look like two animals fighting. They're not lumbering around, but unfortunately, any time that there's movement that needs to look slow and, and lumbering, it just looks kind of silly. So overall, it's kind of a mixed bag, um, especially since a f some of the shots actually are shot properly in high speed, so it's not, there's a lot of contrast. The suits themselves are kind of a mixed bag. The Godzilla suit is not horrible, but it's not great. It's not as uh, iconic as the uh, original uh, 54 suit. It's a little bit taller and thinner, so it looks kind of lanky. Um, this was kind of done, I think, to make it easier to grapple with the Angurus suit more than anything else. So uh, the other interesting thing is that the teeth point outwards uh, instead of inwards. This look wouldn't last. Uh, this would be gone by the next movie, but it's it certainly looks it looks different. It certainly looks like a different Godzilla, which is what this is supposed to be. So in that case, you know, looking at it that way, the effect is good. Angurus looks pretty much the same as we're always going to see Angurus. You know, his design doesn't change all that much. The only thing that's really odd about Angurus is that his shell has two parts in it. It's got it's it's divided in half, and it flops around a lot. Now, a lot of um, fans, myself included, for a long time have attributed this to it just being you know a flaw in the suit. But you know, some images have come up uh, from this era, some contemporary images and drawings of Angurus that show that no, it was supposed to be like that. It's much easier to see now on the DVD. You can very plainly see it in some parts that it's two part uh, his his you know spines on his back. Are in two parts, um, much easier than it was on the VHS. So it's it's an interesting choice. I mean, it's still clearly Angurus. He still looks the same. He's still got the same roar. So everybody loves Angurus. So that's you know that's no big deal. Uh, I do also want to talk a little bit about um, Masaru Sato's music. Now it's pretty sparse. It's not actually, um, I mean, it, it's in there, but a lot of it, it's not a lot of grand themes like uh, Ifukube normally did. There's not a lot of marches. His one march kind of, um, it's its a little more, um, that's the word I'm looking for. It seems a little more urgent than a lot of uh, Ifukube's marches, which were more, you know, march, you know, militaristic style marches. It's not bad. The interesting thing about it, uh, mostly at this point, is that we finally have a chance to hear it in the movie. Um, the uh, when Godzilla Rage Again was released in the United States, the soundtrack was excised and stock, uh, you know, Universal style uh, monster movie music was cut into it. Uh, a theme that will be repeated on a future episode, I, I guarantee you. So, like for instance, the first contact scene with uh, Sukioka and Kobayashi meeting, um, meeting, witnessing Godzilla and Anguirus fighting on the island, now it's got this kind of very mysterious sort of music, which uh, I think fits the scene a lot better than the bombastic uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon music that we get in the uh, dubbed version. I mentioned on the uh, episode about Godzilla versus Biolanti that, um, Godzilla destroys Osaka in that movie, and it's the second Hesai film, and I made the reference that in the second Showa film, Godzilla destroys Osaka. So, just thought I'd make the make the circle complete here. Uh, I do like that they make reference to the fact that Tokyo was destroyed, and that they're still rebuilding, so it makes sense that he would go to the second largest city in uh, Japan, and that'd be Osaka. So...
And Professor Yamane shows up. Um, this is this is a great bit of continuity to me because he shows up and he shows all the stock footage of uh, Godzilla's attack from 1954. Now, of course, this presents its own problem because it's like a solid like four or five minutes of stock footage with no sound. It's just the sound of the projector running. So that was, uh, uh, you know, kind of a... That I would have made a different choice there, I think. Um, in the American version, they cut the footage of the uh, of the original Godzilla, and they put in footage from uh, 1 million BC and some other uh, low-budget uh, American dinosaur movies with a narration over top of it. It's very, very bizarre. Uh, he does kind of make an, he makes an oblique reference to Dr. Serizawa. He doesn't name him, which I thought was odd since they specifically named Yamane, but you know, I don't know. Other interesting thing is that uh, Anguirus is specifically called an Ankylosaurus. And, um, you know, in, in Godzilla, the original Godzilla, they, they talk about how Godzilla's kind of a mix of a Tyrannosaurus and a Stegosaurus, where he has the spines on his back. But here, they pick out the um, Kobayashi and uh, Sukioka, pick out the dinosaur they, or the monster, I should say, the monster they saw out of a dinosaur book, and one of the professors says, oh, that's Ankylosaurus, also known as Angurus. So, I don't remember Ankylosaurus having quite the row of spines on his back that Angurus does, but, you know, I could be wrong. I'm not a highly paid paleontologist. And uh, as I said earlier, this is very specifically a second Godzilla. It's not an attempt to resurrect the first one. It's uh, just, you know, Dr. Yamane says that clearly, uh, you know, the H-bomb that awoke Godzilla awoke a second Godzilla and now also an Angurus. So I thought that was, you know, at least uh, waving your hand at it and not just ignoring, you know, the fact that they killed Godzilla and we saw a skeleton. So we get to see a good portion of post-war Japanese civilian life, which I think is very interesting. We don't get a lot of that in the original Godzilla. It's, it's too much, uh, you know, <laughs> too much pain and suffering. Whereas here, I think shooting the civilian scenes is relatively cheap, so um, they, they put a lot of it in there. Uh, at one point, for instance, Sukioka takes a Hidemi out to a nightclub, and they go dancing, and there's a little musical interlude, and then it all gets broken up when Godzilla is spotted landing in the bay, and everyone panics. This scene reminds me very specifically of all the nightclub scenes in uh, The H-Man, except that one obviously was in color. But uh, it's a nice little glimpse into the, you know, ten years after the war, how much uh, Japanese culture had changed and how, how much uh, westernization had gone down. I mean, this nightclub looks like it could have stepped out of, you know, any type of uh, American film made in the 50s also, except everybody's Japanese in it. That always strikes me as, as interesting. Especially, you know, the thing with the uh, Toho films is that obviously the first one was in 54, and then it continued through the 50s and 60s and then, you know, onward till today. But watching the films in the 50s and 60s, it's always interesting to see how similar and how different the Japanese uh, civilian life, at least the way it's depicted in the films, was from how American civilian life was depicted. I mean, obviously, home life is different, you know. Um, and, and we see, there's a scene later in this where they all go out to a restaurant to celebrate, and that is very different. You know, the whole um, ritual and... Uh, 
stylized way that you you sit on the floor and you every pour each other drinks and all that um, in in a Japanese culture versus how we do it in America. But something like the nightclub or the way that the cars look, the way the women dress, all of that kind of stuff. It's always fascinating how much of it actually does tie together. Um, you know, the East and the West. That that's something that always has interested me. For uh, I don't know. I, that that just always thought that was neat. I can't really explain it beyond that. Uh, speaking of Godzilla's landing in Osaka Bay, we get some more of Saru's uh, soundtrack, and there's a real quiet menace to the scene with the with the soundtrack the way it is in the Japanese version. The um, authorities order a complete blackout, and this is a callback to the war when uh, you know American forces were bombing uh, Japanese cities. They would often call for a blackout, you know, much like. Um, you know, in other parts of World War II, not just limited to Japan. But I think this was kind of a deliberate effort to call back to that feeling about the, uh, you know, the bombings during the war. And in a lot of ways, this film is, is reminiscent of what I would assume civilian life was like during the war. You know, um, Tsukioka, uh, at one point late in the film, he meets up with all of his old, uh, army buddies, all the def- army air, or not army, but their air force, you know, they're all in the same flying squadron during the war, and, uh, you know, he's going on to civilian life, but, um, you know, all of his old uh, wingmates are still in the defense force, and so it's very clear that, you know, this is a, a nod to, you know, the what it was like when, during the raids and that kind of thing, about turning off the lights and hoping for the best, <laughs> you know, which is, uh, you know, not exactly a, a winning strategy, but you do what you can do sometimes. So that scene is really good, where Godzilla just kind of uh, wades out of Osaka Bay right into the uh, uh, Defense Force's uh, arsenal, and then they, they they drop the flares, and he stares at him and, and wanders off. He actually swipes a lighthouse with his tail kind of uh, subconsciously, which I thought was a nice touch as well. Um, the prisoner subplot about the prisoners escaping and causing the crash causes the fire... Yeah, I don't like it at all. It's it's silly. It's it slows down the film because it goes on for a good eight nine minutes. I mean, it just seems to drag on and on. There are other ways they could have done this and gotten the same effect. I was thinking about it earlier today. You know, everyone has evacuated. Maybe during the evacuation, you know, at the refinery, you know, somebody doesn't notice a valve is closed that should be open, or you know, um, there's a leak or something like that, and that causes an explosion. That, to me, would have been a more efficient way to do, uh, you know, get the end result that we're looking for in this scene without having this kind of ridiculous subplot that really goes nowhere. Basically, uh, several of the prisoners are captured, and a few of them die in this big fireball, and the three that survive, uh, they're trying to escape. They run almost right into Godzilla, turn around and run down into the, uh, the underground, and then when Godzilla and Anguirus fall into the moat, the underground is flooded and they drown. So it's like, okay, what was, other than to get the big explosion, what was the point? And there's other ways to make an explosion. So I would have cut that myself, but, you know, again. Speaking of the fight between Godzilla and Anguirus, we do get a decent amount of puppetry work done in here. And sometimes the puppets look pretty good. When they're fighting, they're clashing together, they look like, 
hand puppets being smacked together. You know, that's hard to avoid, and the DVD doesn't help. But when they're shot on their own, where it's just, you know, getting the full range of motion out of the head, and so they can roar and everything, that actually looks pretty good. Now, the effect is a little bit marred, because at one point they use it in front of a rear projection, where Godzilla kind of roars and, and shoots his beam at Anguirus, and we see things catch fire behind him. It's a very poor rear projection. And then it cuts from that to Anguirus reacting to the beam, where he kind of just shrugs it off. A lot of fans point to this as, oh, look, Anguirus is resistant to Godzilla's beam. And I'm willing to accept that. You know, I'm willing to say that Anguirus is a tough dude. You know, he could resist the beam a little bit, being as he is, uh, you know, born of the same nature as, uh, as Godzilla is. But, you know, the rear projection kind of looks, looks a little crummy. Uh, but, you know, there's, and then later on on the ice island, we see the Godzilla puppet again where, you know, he's turning at the planes and roaring at them. And it actually has a good range of motion because it's, I think because it's combined with the miniatures as opposed with another puppet, it, you know, the motion doesn't look as outlandish. I'm not sure if uh, I can explain how, how, what I mean by this without actually showing the footage. So you'll have to bear with me on this. Uh, it's certainly... Um, being in black and white, I think, helps it, too. Um, I, as I say sometimes, you know, close-ups reveal the weakness of the whole thing, whereas in black and white, it kind of masks it a little bit, which uh, is fun. Now, very interestingly, the fight between Godzilla and Anguirus is in the second act and not the third act, which is what you would expect. You'd expect normally to have them clash in the second act, and then retreat, and then have the big showdown at the, uh, at the end. Well, that doesn't happen. Anguirus gets defeated and set on fire right about 45 minutes into the movie. And, you know, you look at your watch like, wait, wait a minute, we got like, you know, 35 minutes left here. What, what happened? Clearly, this being the first film that had two giant monsters fighting each other, they were still tweaking that formula a little bit. And, you know, clearly, even though Anguirus is really put over as, uh, as one bad monster that you don't want to mess with, Godzilla's still the top dog. He's the title monster. He's going to win his fight. And uh, then he has to go on to menace humanity. Uh, although, really, he doesn't menace humanity all that much after his fight with Anguirus. He sinks one fishing ship, which is how the uh, fishing company gets back into searching for him. But he doesn't actually land on Japanese soil again. He, uh, I said, we, he destroys the fishing ship off-screen, and then he ends up on the, uh, the little icy island for the finale. So, but, like I said, the Anguirus, you know eating it at 45 minutes. I mean, I knew it was coming, and it's still odd to me. It's an odd choice. Because you would think that when your film's, um, you know, a lot of its marketing is designed around that there's another monster, and Godzilla's fighting another monster, you know. This was revolutionary stuff in 1955. But, you know, by the same token, the film in Japan is called Godzilla's Counterattack, not Godzilla versus Anguirus. So, I can I can see both ways of it. Again, it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a decision in the film that I think confuses a lot of fans when they see it, especially if they've never seen the film before. It's like, well, wait, why, you know, why is Anguirus dead so early? But, you know, again, it, things were still, were still in their infancy here. We were, uh, you know, the, the tried and true aspects of the Daikaiju um, genre were still being developed. You know, it's, it's like watching Friday the 13th Part 2. You know, I'm Italian. I got to tell you a story to make a point. In uh, Friday the Thirteenth Part Two, 
you know, yes, Jason Voorhees kills a bunch of people, but it doesn't follow a lot of the standard formulaic slasher aspects because they were still being written. I remember when I was, uh, I was either in college or it was when I just graduated college and I was working at the university. I rented Friday the 13th Part 2 from the local uh, movie gallery, which, oh, I love this place. Um, don't get me started talking about that load, that movie gallery that used to be in Clemson. Anyway, and I went over and we were, I was watching with some of my friends at their apartment, and one of my friends turned to me and said, wait a minute, it's been like 15 minutes and we haven't seen someone die or, or a naked pair of breasts. And I said, yeah. I said, that's because this was made in 1980. And we weren't, you know, firing on all cylinders for the formula yet. Same idea here with Godzilla Raids again, you know. Uh, had this been made, um, let's say, in, in 1963, after King Kong vs. Godzilla, you better believe that uh, Godzilla and Angus would have uh, have skirmished in the second act and then had a big throwdown in the, in the third act. I, I have no doubt about that whatsoever. But as it stands, we get their fight, and their fight is impressive, I do have to say. The the fast motion, like I said, it, it does look a little silly in parts, but for the most part, it's so unique and uh, so unlike anything else that we got in the series that it really stands out, and, and I like that part of it. The uh, But the downside of that is that the third act kind of feels tacked on and, it, and a little over long. Um, you know, after they start bombing the uh, island to bury Godzilla in ice, they suddenly have to go back and refuel and talk about it for a while. And by the time they get back, Godzilla's out of the ice and they start all over. And it's like, okay, that you could have cut that whole se- that whole sequence out, and it still would have been fine. It, it's a novel way to get rid of the monster, and and I like that it's referenced directly in the next film. But you know, it it. I think after you have the fight between the two monsters, now we're just looking for wrap-up, and instead we get this whole other direction for the plot. And so it kind of it feels draggy. It doesn't help that interjected into this is a subplot that's been kind of running through the film about uh, Kobayashi hiring a matchmaker to find his future bride. And then... Okay. Basically... He hires this matchmaker because he can't find a woman, okay? And Tsukioka and Hidemi, you know, they're dating and all that, and they seem to be lovebirds and are apparently going to get married. And But they're all friends with each other, and so they're at a, a restaurant, they're celebrating in, uh, in, a, in, in Hokkaido, and, you know, they, Kobayashi's supposed to, you know, he's not ready to... You know, he, the matchmaker told him who his future bride was, but he's not ready to reveal it. And Hademi tries to get his his secret diary that has the picture, and but he won't let her. And then later, when uh, Tsukioka has Godzilla on the island, he radios in that he's low on fuel, and Kobayashi tells him that he's coming to you know he's going to fly out and, and take his place. He leaves the diary there, and Hademi opens it and finds the picture of the girl. Now here's the problem: depending on what you read, it's either a picture of Hademi or a picture of someone else. It's not clear. I mean, even on the DVD, I can't tell, because she has no dialogue about it. She kind of looks at it and smiles. It's like, okay, well, is she smiling that her friend has, uh, you know, has picked a girl and has, you know, somebody that he, fe- that he cares about, or is she smiling because it's her? And it's not addressed in either version, the English version or the Japanese version. And I, I don't, I don't understand it. And it's like, why would he do this? Why would he harbor this, you know, feelings for that his closest friend, this woman that his closest friend's engaged to? 
So I, I don't know. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work for me. And and that it's in there, it just makes the third act even more, you know, you're just kind of like, you know, you're, you're ready for that part to be done, and you're ready just to go on. Like, come on. But... Um, you know, again, it's the formula was being worked out. I'm not. I'm not going to rail on it for not following a formula that didn't exist. Uh, I will rail on it, however, for not developing this subplot enough for us to understand the payoff. You know, I mean, if it's supposed to be Hademi, make it look like it's Hademi. I mean, the girl in the picture has pigtails. Hademi didn't have pigtails. She was a career woman. You know, she was a radio operator at the fishery. Was it Hademi when she was young girl? Why would he be carrying a picture of that? Is it some other girl? If it's some other girl, who is she? Why didn't they introduce us? And the really stupid part is that in the first scene at the fishery, there's another radio operator girl working with Hademi. You could have made it her. That would have explained everything. But no. All right. Uh, I, 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 when I watched this again, I said, well, you know, watching the Japanese version, maybe it'll make more sense. And it didn't. So that, more than anything, was very frustrating to me as a, as a Daikaiju fan. I do want to talk a little bit about the American version. The American version um, of Godzilla Raids Again was released in 1959 and was called Gigantus, the Fire Monster. Now, uh, the rationale behind this is, okay, in 1957, um, two, uh, two gentlemen named Henry uh, Ribnick and Edward Barrison, they wanted to... Uh, make a movie about dinosaurs on the loose in San Francisco. And so they purchased the r American rights to Godzilla Raids again, and they were going to cut out all the scenes that didn't involve the monsters and all the scenes of Godzilla breathing his atomic beam. And uh, it was going to be called the Volcano Monsters. And it was going to be about these two monsters that were born out of a Japanese volcano, and they're brought to the United States, and they uh, they fight in San Francisco, because they were going to use uh, all the, you know, the scenes in Osaka. That was supposed to represent Chinatown in, in uh, San Francisco, which is actually fairly clever, considering that, you know, at that time, I don't know if a lot of Americans could look at and notice a difference between Chinese and Japanese, so willing to let that slide. Well, the Volcano Monsters never happened, because the company that was going to produce it uh, closed in 1957, and in fact, Toho built um, suits of Godzilla and Anguirus that they sent to the United States to, for, to shoot some extra scenes in that film, and they vanished. Nobody knows whatever happened to them. So I guarantee you, some dude in Hollywood's got them in his closet. So uh, a few years later, uh, Paul Schriedman, um he bought the rights along with um, a couple other guys, Edmund Goldman and uh, Newton Jacobs, to bring Godzilla raids again over to the U.S. Since uh, you know the other adaptation never went through. Um, they basically wanted to do a very uh, inexpensive version where they would just dub it, put some new scores in, and add some stock footage. Uh, now, Schriebman came up with the idea of calling the film Gigantus and changing Godzilla's name to Gigantus. The idea here was that he thought audiences would prefer to see a new monster instead of thinking that maybe this was a reissue of the original Godzilla. Uh, Schriebman would later say that, he, that this was a, a mistake on his part and that, you know, he should have given and shouldn't have changed the name, but, you know, it's like baseball. You, you do the, you make the decision based on the information you have at that time. Try to make the best decision you can. So, what's interesting is that uh, on video, like I said, I had the Video Treasures video, the, the title screen still says Godzilla Raids Again, but then the monster is referred to as Gigantus the entire way through. So, the, um, now the, the American film 
much like they would do for Rodan a few years later, is narrated by Key Luke, of all people. And um, But the problem is, unlike Rodan, where the narration is you know, somewhat sparse. I'm not going to say it's totally sparse, but it doesn't really intrude. Essentially, here, the movie is narrated the entire way through. It's like watching a, a movie for the blind, you know, because Key Luke just describes everything that's going on. There's no scenes I can't have. It's either dialogue or Key Luke talking about, uh, you know, describing the action on the screen. So that was... That's kind of frustrating to watch. I mean, the, the American version is is not bad. Like I said, the it's actually on the DVD here. I haven't watched the American one on the DVD. Uh, I'm assuming it's uh, you know very similar to the American one on the VHS, just probably better looking. So um, it's not something you need to seek out. I do want to say that besides um, Key Luke, uh, George Takei uh, is part of the voice cast for uh, uh, God, uh, Gigantus, the fire monster, or you know the American version of Godzilla Raids again, however you prefer. Now, this is very uh, widely incorrectly reported as saying that uh, Takei plays Sukioka in the American version. This is wrong. Takei is just part of the cast. Key Luke plays uh, Sukioka. So, um, as I said, it's. I don't know that anybody is buying the. Um, the Toho Master edition for the American version, but if you want it, it's there. Uh, okay, in closing, so closing thoughts. Uh, Godzilla Rage again, it's not a bad movie. It's The major problem with it is, I think it's surrounded by movies, both before and after, that are a good deal better. Uh, you know, you got the original Godzilla before it, you got King Kong vs. Godzilla after it. Both of those films are superior to this one, and I think it suffers because of that comparison. As the immediate follow-up to Godzilla, like I said, it's a lot like Son of Kong. It's It loses a lot of the... Um, the kind of gravitas of the original, and it just gives us an adventure story. And there's nothing wrong with just having an adventure story. I mean, Daikaiju is an adventure, uh, you know, is, is an adventurous genre, so I don't have a problem with that. My main problem is the potential that was squandered. This movie could have been so much better than it is. As it stands, it's certainly one you can throw on and enjoy. I think it's one that... Um, May not be a great crowd movie because there's not a whole lot of action, but certainly one you can sit down uh, with uh, your favorite beverage and and watch and enjoy. And hey, you get to see Anguirus, and you get to see Godzilla in black and white, and that's extremely rare to see Goji in black and white. You know, um, another thing I do I do want to mention this real quick that I did like about the film is that using a second Godzilla, and this Godzilla would be the one that go on to continue to star in the rest of the Showa series, is in a lot of ways very forward-thinking, because it's exactly what they did in the Hesai series. Because if you all remember, in the Hesai series, the only one that counted was the original Godzilla. And then they picked up with Return of Godzilla and so forth. So, really, it's much the same. It's a second Godzilla. So, um, that, uh, you know, that, when I was watching it, struck me as, you know, hey, that's that's not a bad idea. That's pretty creative. So I was happy to see that. So, in closing... Um, you know, obviously, if, if you're listening to this show, I think you owe it to yourself to give this film a watch, just because it's great that it's finally widely available. For so long, this was a one that was uh, very difficult to obtain, so it became, you know, not not a lost movie, because it was out there, but just wasn't common. And and now, with it being released on DVD uh, in Region 1, it's, it's much easier to get a hold of it, and, you know, I think any Godzilla fan should watch this. Is it one to start with? No, I don't think it is. I don't think it's one that has to go at the very top of the queue unless you're just a big Anguirus fan. And there are big Anguirus fans out there, don't get me wrong. 
but definitely a, a lesser effort. Uh, the series would would improve quite a bit over this in the in the coming years. What's interesting to note is that this was 1955. Godzilla doesn't reappear f until 1962. So, for seven years he was on the shelf following this film. So you know maybe if this had been more successful, well you know it's funny I say that, but of course this is the third um, biggest selling Godzilla film in in uh, Japanese cinema history. Uh, first is King Kong vs. Godzilla. I'm assuming the second is um, Godzilla, but I don't know that for sure. So it wasn't that it was unsuccessful, but maybe I should say if this was a overall better film, maybe Goji wouldn't have taken a seven-year hiatus before uh, he came back to the screen. But that was okay, because in that time we got some really good movies anyway, so not that big a deal. All right, I am going to take a quick break. We're going to be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. We interrupt this podcast for an Earth Destruction Directive special report. All right, folks, as promised on the last episode, I have sitting in front of me the first two issues of IDW's new ongoing Godzilla series, simply titled Godzilla, which we are going to take a look at right now. Godzilla number one is written by Dwayne... Swarzynski, I really hope I'm pronouncing that right, uh, sir. I, with a last name like, like mine, I know how it is when people mispronounce your last name. Artist is Simon Gain, colorist Rhonda Pattinson. Uh, letterer and creative consultant Chris Mallory, and the editor, as always, at IDW is Bobby Kerno. And the first issue is entitled 40 Stories of Sheer Terror. And we open up in Mexico City, where an elaborate and... Uh, um, very ornate uh, wedding is taking place between uh, two gentlemen when the wedding itself is attacked by the giant spider Kumunga, who shoots his webs across everything and slaughters nearly everyone in there. One of the grooms grabs a uh, gas can and a blowtorch and makes a makeshift grenade that he throws at Kumunga, but to no end. At the same time, in uh, the Autodroma Jose Carlos Pache in Brazil, which is the uh, uh, car auto racing track in Brazil, Rodan attacks a open-wheel race. In uh, Seoul, South Korea, the Batra, in his Im uh, Imago form, attacks uh, the base. And 50 miles outside of Washington, D.C., is Godzilla himself. We cut to inside DC where we meet up with Boxer, described as a professional soldier and an amateur cook. Current status making poached eggs. Trying to, anyway. Uh, his uh, culinary attempts are interrupted when the entire kitchen in the uh, uh, 40 star the skyscraper that he's in begins to shake. Uh, he immediately springs into action, running to grab his charge, Miss Murakama. Miss Murakama is the daughter of a Japanese billionaire who's currently in, ta in town to talk about bankrolling the reconstruction of Washington, D.C. Now, if you read Godzilla Kingdom of Monsters, which I attempted to do, you'll know that D.C. was destroyed in that series, and this series is in continuity with that one, even if it seems to be trying to distance itself from it. 
Me outside, the army is fighting Godzilla as best they can, and Boxer is taking Miss Murakama and trying to escape the building. Unfortunately, Godzilla is knocked directly into their building, shattering a good portion of it. Their escape route has been cut off, and now they're trying to get down as best they can. Boxer grabs a hold of Miss Murakama and ends up sliding down a flight of stairs after jumping over a huge gaping hole. They do their best to get out. They make it to the 36th floor into a what they think is an elevator shaft, but when Boxer opens it, he finds nothing but the cable dangling off over empty space because Godzilla has wiped out that entire section of the building. Boxer puts Miss Murakama over his uh, shoulders and slides down the uh, cable, all 36 stories. <laughs> his hands, of course, get pretty cut up during all this, but he, they make it all the way almost to the ground when the cord runs out. Boxer uh, leans against the building and jumps off, and uh, they crash into a tree and fall to the ground, but they're safe. Well, as safe as they can be in a major city being attacked by Godzilla. They make a run for it, and they run into the uh, blockade of the army. And uh, the soldier gives a, you know, says, what are you doing here? And uh, Boxer is not really hearing any of it, and he gives the guy a lip. And um, basically asks him, what's, where's that billion-dollar early attack warning system I keep reading about in the papers? And the soldier says, that system is not quite fully operational yet. The soldier tells the two of them, calling Miss Murakama Boxer's daughter, to get out as fast as you can, any way you can. On their way out, however, they run into a very well-armed uh, redneck militia group, and uh, they demand to know why Boxer won't defend his country, to which Boxer, being British, says, ain't my country, mate. That sounded more Australian than British, but same difference. The uh, militia sees Godzilla coming through a clearing, and they immediately open fire. And, of course, this being an IDW book, they shoot and kill Miss Murakama in the crossfire. Boxer is summarily freaked out. He has flashbacks to his own family and how he was never there for them. And he carries Miss Murakama's body all the way to the steps of the capital, which is being rebuilt. Godzilla seems to be following him and destroys the capital once again with his atomic beam, burying Boxer under the rubble. Boxer crawls out of the, uh, real re the rebar and concrete, blood covering his face and pouring from his nose. And then he starts to laugh. Picking up his shattered cell phone, Boxer makes a call to an old friend. To be continued. Um, okay. First off, let me say that the art in this book is fantastic. Simon Gain did the art for Godzilla Legends number two, which was the Rodan issue, and I really liked his artwork in that. If anything, it looks better here. His Kumonga is the first time I've ever seen Kumonga really look menacing. I think his Kumonga looks fantastic. This is probably the best Kumonga has ever looked. And his Godzilla is powerful and monstrous and vicious looking his Godzilla looks great now his human characters look really good too Boxer's our main character that we follow throughout the story and he looks like the kind of guy that Jason Statham would play in a movie you know um, he's you know bald he's scrubbly scrubbly he's got some uh, stubble on his face he's got big arms big legs you know a chest hair his shirt's unbuttoned down to the to his sternum really looks like a you know again I think he's supposed to look like Jason Statham and if that's the intent he looks great uh, as far as the story by uh, Dwayne Swazerski, I think this is a great story, to be completely honest. I thought part of the problem with 
uh, Kingdom of Monsters was that it was focused too much on not necessarily the human story, but on, you know, silly things about the human story, the politics and things like that, whereas this focuses a lot more on the action, and it combines the human story of Boxer trying to get uh, his charge to safety with the monster action of Godzilla, you know, fighting the uh, army in the background and crashing into the buildings. Now, that's not to say that IDW's somewhat rampant left-wing politics don't rear their head here. As I said, the first scene is a gay wedding in, in Mexico City, and I'm no expert, but I'm pretty sure gay marriage is not legal in Mexico, so I, I don't know what's up with that other than to make this this character who is, spoiler for the next issue, is a recurring character to make him homosexual. I really don't see the point other than that. This very easily could have been him getting married to a woman, and it probably would have made more sense again, given the setting. And then later, um, when you know Boxer and Miss Murakawa are on the run, they run into this militia group, and they are the fattest, dumbest-looking, redneckest-looking bunch of morons you can imagine. There's even a looks like a ten-year-old kid with him, looks like Eddie Furlong from Terminator 2 with his cap on backwards, and they're all armed to the teeth with shotguns and M16s. The kid's holding an M16 that's obviously way too big for him. And it's like, yes, I know, we get it. All of us clinging bitterly to our guns and religion are all morons. We get it, IDW. I don't understand what this is. It's not just the Godzilla series. I recently had chance to read IDW's Mars Attacks number one. It was almost unreadable, the uh, politics were so thick. This idea that, uh, you know, and I won't get into that, that's a different book, but the politics in IDW books, for whatever reason, seems to always lean very hard to the left, which is very frustrating for someone like me. But in this case, I'm willing to ignore it because you take that, take that bit out, you make that group anybody else, this story still works really good. Um, you know, it, they are who they are for the sake of the story, willing to accept it because the rest of the story is very good, you know. So, um, let's move right along to the second issue. Now, the second issue is by the same creative team, and it is entitled, Giant Monsters Are the Disease. And uh, we open up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where uh, Godzilla has moved on to from D.C. Uh, a young guy runs the street trying to uh, tweet about this on his uh, smartphone, about the city being destroyed, but the server is busy. And uh, we uh, then get a... Uh, actually, it's pretty tragic, because he's trying to post an update. It says, okay, ladies and gents, check this out. Live from Pittsburgh, the one and only... And he's cut off when Godzilla topples a building on top of him, and then his next uh, series of tweets are, Help. Please send help. I don't know the intersection. Don't know where I am. Buried. Help. Love you, Grace. So that that's kind of... That was kind of depressing. Uh, we, from there, we move on to Nogales, Arizona, which is on the U.S.-Mexico border, as uh, Kumunga stampedes through the, the fence... <laughs> the rumored fence, uh, on the border. And a uh, U.S. Border Patrol agent is tweeting uh, back and forth with her husband. And um, he can't, you know, he's uh, she's telling him to tell the guys to lock and load so we can send this creepy crawler back to Mexico. And then we see Kumunga shoot a blast of web. And uh, her husband tweet back to her, where are you? Come on, honey, where are you? Talk to me. So things are getting pretty ugly here. We then cut to Edinburgh, where... Uh, a reporter, an amateur reporter, is watching Angurus destroy the city, and uh, he is, you know, he's shooting it on his uh, little flip cam, and the last shot on his flip cam is an extreme close-up of Angurus's mouth. 
So we cut to a chopper where we see uh, Boxer and a few other folks, and uh, then we get some flashbacks to find out how we got to where we were. After Boxer uh, was buried alive and pulled himself up at the end of last issue, he commandeered a chopper from the uh, United States Army by punching out the pilot. From there, he flew to Brazil, where he met up with his old friend Harrison, who is his wheelman. Now, Harrison was in the race that Rodan attacked, and uh, Boxer meets him in the hospital. Now, unfortunately, Harrison has was so injured he's lost the ability to speak. The next person they meet up with is Irv, the man who was getting married to his uh, lover in the previous issue. And now he clearly wants revenge. And Irv is a his background is in demolitions, and he's one of the best demolitions man that uh, boxers ever known. They have one more person that they need to uh, get, so they fly all the way to Korea, and there they find one Claire Plangman, an army scientist, who was stationed at that garrison in Korea. She's the last person alive on the base. So Boxer uh, gets her, and she's not happy because basically she's holed up in a uh, ammunitions closet, and is not happy that Boxer just kind of strolls in and says, hey, come on. So they come at excuse me, commandeer another chopper, and they head back to Edinburgh. And uh, Angurus is still tearing through the city. Now, Boxer and his crew, they've got a plan. So they land on the ground, and they run into the uh, British army. And Boxer very quickly uh, punches the guy in the throat. The uh, I'm guessing he's a... Well, I can't tell what rank he is. We don't see, but the guy comes up to him, and apparently it's obviously a guy that used to serve with him. The uh, British soldier said, How's it, How long's it been, mate? The boys are going to be thrilled to see you. You've been taking a serious beating, and right then, Boxer punches him in the throat. He says, I need someone with real authority. And uh, so he gets on the phone with the... Uh, some he says permanent secretary Raphael went. I'm guessing it's the equivalent of the Secretary of Defense. And Boxer tells the secretary that uh, him and his crew are going to take care of the monster problem. And the secretary says, how do you propose to do that? And Boxer says, pay us seven billion pounds and you'll find out. And uh, the secretary obviously balks at this, to which Boxer says, uh, you've got the cash and the authority to make this deal. We failed to take down this spike bastard. You pay nothing. Do you really want to be the guy who turned us down when we stop another one of these monsters in another city? Makes a pretty good point when you think about it. The secretary uh, goes for it, and the team sets off in a, uh, a well, looks like an acquired Humvee, and uh, to get uh, Angurus's attention. They uh, drive by him, and uh, Irv tosses a... Uh, explosive packet out the window, hitting Angurus in the chin. That gives Anzi uh, reason to take notice of the little vehicle. Um, Harrison uh, hits the deck, or hits the gas, and they sc uh, scream out of there, Angurus giving pursuit. As he stomps after them, he tears apart the street and all the abandoned and half-destroyed vehicles, including a series of buses in his way, chasing after the Hummer. And, uh, he keeps giving chase, and Harrison keeps wheeling around all these corners, trying to uh, avoid him. Irv jumps off, because they're setting up a trap for him. And while, meanwhile, on the Hummer, uh, Boxer is arming himself with a weapon. See, what uh, one of the things that Plangman was developing was anti-monster technology. Governments funded thousands of, quote, giant monster repelling systems, GMRSS. The headache beam was one of them. It's this giant gun. Looks like something that would have been packaged with a G.I. Joe in 1993 that uh, Boxer is armed with. Uh, 
Boxer's narration conveniently tells us that Claire designed it to addle the brains of giant monsters. Nobody believed it would work. Nobody but its inventor, Claire Plangman. So Boxer gets himself uh, armed as uh, Claire uh, gets the weapon ready to fire. Uh, Boxer is about to is giving everyone their orders on what they're going to do when suddenly Anguirus swipes the Hummer in the side with his tail, sending it flying end over end. It comes skidding to a halt, and uh, everybody's turned upside down and over. And Boxer smashes his head against the roof and is bleeding again. Anguirus then comes in and headbutts it with his ho- uh, the horn on his nose, sending it flying one more time, basically destroying it. Everybody piles out of the. Uh, Hummer, as Anguirus uh, you know, looms above it, screaming, ready to, to kill all three of the humans inside, to which Claire very conveniently says, guess it would be too much to assume you had a backup plan, eh, Boxer? To be continued. Now, again, we do get some really... Um, to me, irritating politics. The bit at the beginning with the uh, the border patrol agent is clearly an, another dig at um, you know the the Mexican American uh, border situation. But the, it's tempered because at the same time, even though um, it's you know obviously written from a oh look at these stupid uh, right wing bitter clingers uh, aspect, it's it's tragic that you know um, she's tweeting to her her husband to uh, get everybody ready and then she gets killed and he's tweeting back to her and she and she won't pick up in fact all of these sequences are really tragic and I, I really like the way that they're portrayed showing the the physical human toll at a single human's level of these monster attacks the first one in Pittsburgh about the guy you know the guy is um, is, is tweeting about that he's trapped and he doesn't know where he is I mean that's kind of horrifying when you really think about it. And uh, I, I do like the, the Scotsman who is um, run over by uh, Anguirus. His last, wor- his, his last word is love and luck to all. And I, I thought that was uh, appropriately written. Now, um, the scene of Boxer recruiting the team is, you know, it's a montage! We're going to need a montage! Montage! And, uh, but that's okay, I like montages. But it's, it's very A-team-esque almost with him recruiting the team. But if these are going to be the characters we follow, it's good to get a little background on all of them. Um, then we get into the actual action set piece here where they land in Edinburgh and, uh, you know, try to work their little plan where they're going to kill Anguirus. And, um, man, it's, it's something else, I tell you what. Um, it reminds me, in a very tangential sense, of the taxi cab scene from the American Godzilla, except this is actually exciting. So, do with that information what you will. Anguirus looks great. I tell you what, Gain can draw Anguirus to look pretty damn fierce. And one thing I do like is that he carries over the idea that Anguirus kind of walks on his hands and knees a little bit. Because Anguirus was obviously played by a man in the suit, he can't walk like a real quadruped. So his back legs are always bent at the knee, and then he walks on the balls of his feet. And we get a very good shot. There's no page numbers here, but it's right in the middle because it's right by the staple. Of after they throw the bomb at Anguirus's chin, of him kind of turning his head and looking down at them, and we see a full body shot of him, and he's in the exact pose that uh, Anguirus would always be in when he was standing on all fours in the film. So I really like that. Uh, you know, Gaines' art in general just looks great all throughout. It's it's gritty. It's not flashy or showy. It's very grounded, and it suits this series really well so far. Um, you know, Boxer's. Uh, over smug overconfidence. It's as a reader, I love seeing him getting taken down 
a peg by Angurus, you know, he's so confident that his plan is going to work, and they're going to take him up, because it's only Angurus, you know, and Angie, you know, it's throom that he hits him with the tail, and then crock, he smacks him with the horn on his nose, and this Hummer is just destroyed, and, um, you know, Harrison, Plangman, and Boxer, they, they look like crap, and the gun is destroyed. The headache gun is, you uh, know, there's wires sticking out of all different parts of it, and there's panels broken off of it. Um, so, this was, uh, you know, they're, they're, in, they're in trouble. Although, I gotta admit, I do like the very mega macho next issue box. It says, next, for these men, monster invasion wasn't hell. It was practice. Yeah, there's, there's not enough testosterone in this book already, I guess. So far, two issues in. I am very much impressed with IDW's new ongoing Godzilla series. This is substantially better than Kingdom of Monsters was after two issues. I heartily recommend this. As of the time of my recording of this, the third issue is out. I do not have it yet. Uh, I've explained this before in the show. I get my comics mail order uh, through DCBS. That's www.dcbservice.com and I only ship once a month so I have to wait till the end of the month before I get my box of comics so I'm, I'm a little behind um, I only record this show once a month so not the end of the world but I should be caught up and uh, I'll try and um, maybe not every month but every other month or so give an update on the series just to keep everybody informed about where it's going but yeah I totally recommend these um, they are really enjoyable I really like where this storyline's going I like this concept of the uh, the humans fighting the monsters taking it to them but not in an um, you know like a, a g-force type of way this is just a group of mercenaries I think that's really great there's some great covers on here uh, for number one I got the cover B which is art by Tony Harris it's um, kind of an interesting take it's it's Godzilla's foot smashing down in the background and we get some people running in the foreground but uh, they're running through a giant puddle and we see the reflection of Godzilla in the puddle looming above. I thought that was pretty neat. On uh, number two I got the uh, A cover and who did the art for this cover? IDW always puts all their alternate covers usually in the back. Ah, here we go. Uh, Zach Howard did the cover, and this is Godzilla crawling around a uh, outcropping underwater with a giant school of fish in front of it. Also very cool. The colors on this uh, by Nelson Daniel on this cover look great. Godzilla really looks very, very nice. So, yes... Uh, I know Kingdom of Monsters wasn't all that great, but this continues to streak for IDW, first with Gangsters and Goliaths, then Godzilla Legends, and now the new, uh, simply titled Godzilla Ongoing. I think they've really uh, got onto a good storyline here. I think uh, Swarzynski and Gain and Pattison have uh, a very good dynamic. I really like the work they've put out so far. Definitely check this out. All right, guys, we're going to take another break. We'll be right back on Earth Destruction Directive. Monsters are coming. Mighty Gigantus crushing whole cities in its wrath. Deadly Angurus screaming its challenge of battle to the death. They're out to destroy each other, but first they'll destroy the world. Look out for Gigantus the Fire Monster. See the war of the fantastic fire monsters that rains destruction on the world. See Gigantus the Fire Monster from Warner Brothers. Also, teenagers from outer space. Young hoodlums from another planet on a fantastic ray gun rampage across the motion picture screen. Okay, folks, welcome back to Earth Destruction Directive. It's time for everybody's favorite listener feedback. 
I set out the call last time for the listeners to send me some feedback, send me some emails or posts on the blog, and you guys really came through, and I appreciate that. So, big thank you to everyone who uh, wrote in, and uh, let's get right into it. J.R. Shear made a blog post, and uh, J.R. writes, I'm really looking forward to your King Kong Escapes episode. I love that film so very much, despite its awful Kong mask. The Kong suit itself is actually pretty good, a vast improvement over the one used in King Kong vs. Godzilla, with excellent gorilla-like musculature and proportions, and the suit actors able to move fantastically. Doctor Who is such a grand and dastardly villain, and his mechanic Kong is a thing of pure brilliance. The suit design and execution were superb. I also love the score and sound effects, particularly the staccato Morris Code sounding Mechanicon in action music. Well, thank you very much uh, for writing in, JR, and I hope you did like our King Kong Escapes episode. I, I thought it was a great episode. I had a lot of fun talking about King Kong Escapes and, and watching King Kong Escapes. I've been listening to the King Kong Escapes soundtrack in my car. Um, pretty much uh, from before when I was preparing for that show and then now after I've recorded it and and you're right it's a great score it's it's uh you know it combines kind of the jungle action sort of uh sound with some of the more standard um Ifukube Daikaiju themes I think it comes off really good Mechanicon's theme is um yeah I think it suits him really good and it did not surprise me when that theme was was basically reused uh, for the Hesai Mechagodzilla. And the staccato Morris code that you refer to, the I, I love that. It's so old-fashioned for a robot to sound like that, you know. Uh, back you know, back in the 60s, that was a kind of a trope, but I really like that. So thank you very much for, for writing in JR. Good to hear from you again. Uh, PQ Ribber left a uh, comment on the blog, and uh, Mr. Ribber says, Just inhaled all the episodes over the weekend. Great series, lots of cool info, and overall entertainium. I grew up in Monticello, New York, so we watched the same giant monsters coming up, likely. Looking forward to lots more. Well, thank you very much, PQ, for writing in it. And yeah, if you're in Monticello, where I was down in uh, uh, Putnam County... I would guarantee we watch the same ones on either uh, WPIX Channel 11. Every now and again, you'd get one on WGN Channel 9, or or which was W or was it WOR WOR Channel 9 before they became WGN, and, um, and then of course on TBS uh, back when it was WTBS when it was a superstation. Uh, so thank you very much, PQ. I'm glad you're enjoying the show. Looking forward to hearing uh, what you think about this episode. So be sure to leave another post. Finally, we got an email from Bill Robinson, and Bill writes, Luke, sorry to hear about the lack of feedback. I have been enjoying the show. I, too, back in the day, watched King Kong Escapes on TBS, and I'm not just saying that because it was on the podcast. Bill, since I made that comment, I have had so many people tell me, yeah, I used to watch that movie on TBS as a kid, too. I think between King Kong Escapes and the green slime. I think that made up the majority of TBS's uh, giant monster uh, uh, library. Um, I remember that, and King Kong vs. Uh, Godzilla was one you'd see a lot, and uh, Godzilla's Revenge was another one that, that you'd see a lot. At least uh, you know in the later 80s. In the early 80s, I remember on... on what was it Captain USA? You used to see the Gamera movies, I guess because they were public domain. You'd see you know War of the Monsters and... Uh, um, you know, attack of the giant, attack of the giant monsters and stuff like that. But uh, you know, hey, it's 
Gotta love TBS back in the day, showing all that. The Green Slime, I think we'll cover that at some point. That movie's just too funny not to cover, I think. Um, Bill continues, I was also big into Ultraman back then. Ultraman could only be exposed to sunlight for three minutes. I remember the one instance where he exceeded the time limit and was frozen. I believe he then went to some sort of Ultraman council that let him return. And uh, Bill's referring to towards the end of the series when Ultraman Zafi shows up. Uh, I've been watching the original Ultraman on DVD, so I, I'm right with him on this topic. Uh, Bill continues, I so wanted a beta capsule to turn myself into a giant alien fighter. <laughs> that epi The episode that sticks in my mind the most was a creature that ate barrels of oil, and oil in the water from a mouth that was in the center of what looked like two separate creatures, like Siamese twins, joined at the hip with a mouth. Now the monster that Bill's referring to is the monster Pestar, and uh, I know the episode he's talking about, I, I just watched it, and Pestar is a giant starfish-like uh, monster. He's actually played, like Bill says, by two men wearing an oversized suit, so it looks like, it's like a starfish with, well, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight limbs instead of five, and it's because it's two guys standing side by side, and then the mouth is in the middle where their hands would meet if they were holding hands. Uh, Bill continues, uh, Ultraman shot water from his extended hand like a hose that was probably hidden behind his hand. He was using it to fight an oil refinery fire. I think this one sticks out the most because when I was 9 or 10, I would stand in the shower and let water run down my arm and pretend to be Ultraman. That is awesome. That is so awesome. Growing up like I did in New York, once we got into the late fall and into the winter, every morning it'd be so cold, of course, that your, your breath would fog up. And uh, to this day, I still... Uh, if it's called it for my breath to fog up, I will shoot the breath out of my mouth and pretend I'm the early Godzilla shooting the uh, his breath weapon when it was the 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 mist instead of the beam. So I'm right there with you on that one, Bill. Sorry to get a bit weird there. Don't ever be sorry for getting weird on this show. It's a daikaiju show for crying out loud. Anyway, keep plugging away, and I also enjoy you on the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror. Signed, Bill Robinson, uh, for Mosin on the Two True Freaks forum. Thank you very much, Bill. I, I appreciate that. And, I, and I'm glad to find another Ultraman fan out there. We're going to be talking about Ultraman at some point on this show. As I said, I've been really enjoying uh, the Mills Creek DVDs of the uh, original Ultraman. I mean, you can get the entire run of Ultraman, both subtitled and with their original dubs from when they aired in Hawaii in the, in the 60s, for like you know, 10, 12 bucks. I mean, you can't beat that. That is great. Furthermore, I've also gotten... Uh, pretty, uh, <laughs> probably a little too involved in um, the current tokusatsu fan sub community. Uh, the site that I hang out a lot at is www.tokunation.com, all one word, T-O-K-U, nation. And uh, so I've been watching uh, a few different fan subs of some older Ultraman's older Ultraman series. Easy for me to say, including uh, the original Ultra Seven, um, the Hesai Ultra Seven X, uh, Ultraman Tiga, things of that nature. I, I really like Ultraman. Um, so being able to watch these shows and watch them for free is pretty awesome. So uh, I'll put up uh, I'll put up a link. There's a, a very good uh, direct download site that I'll, I'll put up a link to in the. Uh, either on the blog or on the show notes, and you guys can go check it out. You can get some fan subs. And, and not just Ultraman, but uh, the Super Sentai, Kamen Rider, some other uh, Metal Heroes, some other tokusatsu TV shows. It's just, it's a very big community. And what, what's real interesting about this community to me is that you know I got into tokusatsu 
And for those who don't remember from our, our first episode, tokusatsu just means uh, special effects, and typically refers to a live-action, either movie or TV show, that has special effects in it. Doesn't necessarily Im- imply any particular genre, although typically, when you say tokusatsu, people think about um, daikaiju, and uh, the Super Sentai, Kamen Rider, other Henshin heroes, transforming heroes, things of things like that. So, uh, I got into Tokusatsu obviously through Daikaiju, through watching Godzilla. So that's where I always come from. My favorite Tokusatsu properties are, you know, gi- giant monsters and Ultraman because Ultraman is a Daikaiju show too. But a lot of these younger guys and getting into Tokusatsu now, they just go crazy, go bananas for Kamen Rider and you know, this to a somewhat lesser degree, the Super Sentai. Now that's cool, I don't have a problem with that, I love both of those. But it's just so funny to me that, like on, on this board, tokenation.com, you know, there's a whole subsection for Kamen Rider, there's a whole subsection for uh, the Super Sentai, there's a whole subsection for Americanized Tokusatsu, and then there's other Tokusatsu, and it says Godzilla, Ultraman, all the others. It's like, <laughs> I'm sorry, without Godzilla and Ultraman, you wouldn't have. <laughs> the Super Sentai. You wouldn't have Kamen Rider. So, to me, it should be, you know, Daikaiju, and then Super Sentai, Kamen Rider, other. But that's, I'll get off my soapbox. That's that's just really, I mean, nerd complaints in general are usually pretty silly, and that's, that's pretty low, even on the nerd complaint totem pole. So, thank you everyone who wrote in or left a comment on the blog. If you are interested in leaving feedback for Earth Destruction Directive, uh, the address, the email address, and the blog address will follow the close of the show. So, please send in your thoughts, comments, and I will be glad to respond to them on the show. Now, speaking of the next show, what are we going to be taking a look at? Well, it's been a while since we've looked at Gamera, so we're going to get back into the swing of things with the uh, friend to children everywhere. We're going to be looking at the second film in the Gamera series, uh, actually my favorite one of the series. We're going to be looking at Gamera vs. Baragon, also known as War of the Monsters, also known as... Gamera Tai Barogan, if you want to say it in Japanese. Now, the thing about this film is that it is available free uh, on archive.org and other public domain sites under the War of the Monsters title. Now, this is because this was the AIP television version that was aired in the United States that has since lapsed into the public domain. You can also find the Sandy Frank dub, which is called Gamera vs. Barogan, uh, I think that's available in some forms. I, I know that it used to be available on VHS, and then that aired on television for a long, long time. So you could probably find a copy of that. But um, Shout Factory, drew a blank there for a second. Shout Factory has released the uh, uncut Japanese only, does have English subtitles, but no dub track at all of Gamera Taibaragon. Uh, on DVD. They've actually done, I think at this point they've completed the entire Gamera series, uh, Showa Gamera series, which is pretty cool when you think about it. So you've got some options here. Your your easiest and cheapest option would be go to archive.org and just search for War of the Monsters. That version is actually quite good. That's the one I grew up watching because uh, that was the one that was on, syn- you know, in the syndication packages for a long time until the Sandy Frank dub came around in the very early 90s and uh, I think it's superior to the Sandy Frank dub. Of course, I have the Japanese one, so I'll probably end up watching them both. 
and, uh, you know, do a compare and contrast like we did with the original camera. So, um, that's all I've got for today. I hope everybody enjoyed the show. It's been a lot of fun recording it. Uh, I think, you know, this may be another DX episode. I don't think it's going to be as, as long as a Godzilla Legends episode, but I do love the sound of my own voice, so that does lead me to recording these over long episodes. But thanks again, everyone who wrote in. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. Come on back next time. We're going to be watching uh, Gamera vs. Bargain. So until then, keep them stomping. This has been Earth Destruction Directed, a Daikaiju podcast, hosted and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, and presented by the Two True Freaks Podcast Network, available at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. All characters, stories, images, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This is a fan work designed to honor the rich history of Japanese giant monster movies and culture. The opinions expressed on Earth Destruction Directive are my own, and I receive no money for this work. You can send feedback to our email address, earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. All feedback is welcome, and if you send it an email, I will respond to you on the show. Alternately, you can leave a comment at the home of Earth Destruction Directive on the Internet, earthdestructiondirective.blogspot.com. You can also check out the Two True Freaks Forum at www.forumforgeeks.com. And you can find me on Twitter with the handle Eljacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. And be sure to head to twotruefreaks.libson.com to check out all the other fine quality Two True Freaks podcasts available. Thanks for listening, and come back next time for more Earth Destruction Directive. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.